Let's go to God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have come down to us in the person of Jesus, and we pray that you would make your presence with us right now known through your spirit, through your word. God, speak to us. Make these words burn in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you searching for? Do you consider yourself to be a lifelong learner? Our our efforts here should lead to new sources of enjoyment. And any new discovery of what you haven't yet heard or haven't yet seen requires either a new teaching or a new witness. But even then, that's not enough. In order to learn anything from that new teaching or that new witness, you need to trust the source. Which means at some level, your ability to find what you're searching for or learn something new requires faith. In other words, you need to trust your source. Believing something when you have no reason is a weak faith. Sometimes that's how people think about faith. It's what you believe when you have no reason to. But that's a weak faith that can change from one day to the next, and that's no way to live. A strong faith is about knowing what you believe is true because of the source. So who or what determines how strong your faith is? what exactly you believe in, and the level of joy that comes from that. These are deep questions, and the Gospel of John is a deep book about Jesus. The person John claims reveals God to us, and that John himself was an eyewitness to. According to John chapter 20, verse 31, he he tells us that he writes this book so that you and I will believe and find life in Jesus' name. That's the purpose of the gospel of John. It's that we would read it, believe it, and find life in Jesus' name. So if you have your Bibles with you today, please turn with me to the gospel of John. You can find that on page 941 in the church Bibles. 941, and if you're new to the Bible, the large, bold numbers are the chapters, the smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. These first 18 verses are the prologue, and they truly capture the whole book. So if you've ever seen a a movie trailer where where the words are the main draw. Maybe, maybe there's some flashing of scenes there, some music. But, but it's the words that are so captivating. That's the effect of John's prologue. It's not about the actions at first. It's about the words. In fact, the, the early Christian symbol for the Gospel of John was an eagle. Due to the lofty heights at which this prologue takes us. Here, divinity and humanity, pre-existence and incarnation, revelation and sacrifice are all intertwined together with masterful skill and simplicity. It's masterfully written with truth statements, drawing on the whole Bible, capturing the whole essence of John's gospel in order to beckon us like like a captivating trailer to read this book with great intent and respond with strong faith. Here's John's purpose in the prologue, in the whole book. Again, it's to find life in Jesus Christ by believing the testimony about him. Find life in Jesus 
by believing the testimony about him. And if you're taking notes to help you listen and follow along, we're going to walk through this text in three major parts. First, know who Jesus is. This is one through five. Know who Jesus is. Second, believe in him. That's in verses 6 through 13. Believe in him. And third, enjoy him. This is verses 14 through 18. Enjoy him. That's how you find life in Jesus by believing the testimony about him. Know who he is, believe in him, and then find that life. Enjoy him. Enjoy his presence. So first, know who Jesus is. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him not one thing was created that has been created. The first words of John's Gospel are actually the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning. So whatever this good news about Jesus is, John's introducing his readers to a kind of new creation story. Because in Genesis 1, God is speaking. And all of life and creation is coming into existence. And right here in verse 1, in the beginning, was the Word. People often like to point out how the word, for word here, is the same word that we get our our word logic from. And even Greek Stoics understood that that God's wisdom was powerfully at work in creation. And yet, clearly, the word, in verse 1, is more than just speech. It's, It's more than just wisdom here. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, this is already just very interesting, because the Gospel of John... All about Jesus, unlike all the other Gospels, doesn't begin with the story of Jesus' birth, but of the Word in the beginning. And this Word is both distinct from God, the Word was with God, but He's also very much in union with God. The Word was God. So the Word is of the same essence. Then in verse 3, the word takes on personal creative attributes. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So the word is a person, distinct from God, in union with God, creating all things out of nothing, just as we read about God in Genesis 1. And sneak preview here, down in verse 14, John says the word takes on flesh. Clearly in reference to Jesus. So, when John starts talking about the good news of Jesus Christ, he has us start at the very boundaries of our being able to conceptualize him. We're talking about matters that are hard to wrap our minds around. Kind of like starting with the question uh, that every philosopher might start with. Why is there not nothing? Isn't that an interesting question? kids. Things exist. Why is that? Where did the first things of anything come from? If you really think about that, that's a deep question. It'll it'll start to hurt your head, right? And the Bible doesn't fully explain the answer, but it gives us an answer. In the beginning was the Word. The Word had no beginning. It was just there. In the beginning, it was, it was always there. God isn't bound by time. He predates all existence. There was never a time when the Word was not. That's the answer and all the explanation we have. And if anyone ever says, well, that can't be. You know, there has to be a beginning. Well, we, we didn't still have a problem with why there's anything. You know, somehow something had to have always been there. And if we can't accept that, then we have to deny that what we think or see is actually real. Something had to always be there. 
And here's what's being taught to us in all that we see right now in creation. It doesn't just happen. Creation itself is a word from God. There is design. And the designer is clearly good and powerful and wise. And in him is life. This is how John wants to start his message about Jesus. Jesus is both distinct from God the Father in his person, and yet he's one with the Father. This is why Thomas will later, eventually, at the end of John's gospel, proclaim, My Lord and my God about Jesus. Now, ask people what God is like, and normally people will start describing God in the same way that we would describe people. Right? So, so God often sounds like who we are, who we like to think of ourselves as being like. But John wants us to fully know who Jesus is. And Jesus is like us, that's true, but he's also very different from us. He has no beginning. In fact, he's God, our creator. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're, we're really glad you're here. And I don't know if you think about the person of Jesus that, that you may be rejecting right now is, is a teacher that you're rejecting, like lots of other teachers, or a philosopher, like other philosophers, or just a morally good example that you're not following. But from the Bible standpoint, you're actually rejecting your creator when you reject Jesus. You're rejecting God. And that's no small claim for a man like John. He's a Jew raised in a monotheistic culture of thousands of years. He's he's rejecting that aspect of his culture in the minds of people to some degree, so he's going to face persecution for that. But then John was with Jesus, and he saw him raised from the dead, and, and that's no small thing either. And so he makes big claims about Jesus. And claims like this make demands on us. If verses 1 through 3 are true, then nothing can stand alongside Jesus in our lives. He has absolute claim over our time, our money, our action, even our love. We're called to worship Him without ceasing, obey Him without hesitation, love Him without reservation. If it's false, then it's to be rejected just as strongly. It's very wrong for anyone to put this kind of finality upon a person in order to have absolute claim over all our life. So whether or not you're a Christian... I want to encourage us to come here each week to study this book with an intensity of attention to what we see in Jesus. Because the claims about him matter. They matter for the world. They they matter for you. They matter for the people you know. You can't be apathetic or indifferent or neutral on Jesus. As C.S. Lewis once said, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Here, the word, verses 1 through 3, is God speaking. And it's God himself. In other words, the word is the message and the messenger. It's one and the same. It's it's similar to how do we talk about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity is a message from God, about God, specifically about the person of Jesus. And it's believing the message that we find life. Look at Jesus in verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The scripture often uses very opposite terms of light and life to describe the condition of this world that we live in. It's full of death and darkness. This world isn't working the way we know it should. You don't even have to turn on the news to know that, right? It's it's all around us. In our own experience and in the experience of those that we love, there's much pain. 
There's much sorrow. We've prayed about it already this morning. And beyond that, the world is full of hatred, real evil. Now, sure, it's, it's also filled with a lot of good. We need to recognize that life is still a good gift from God. And yet we know that life in this world is broken. Clearly, the, the Bible says it's under a spiritual curse, living in rebellion against God. It's full of death and darkness. But God is speaking his word into the darkness, just like in Genesis 1 when he says, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus is coming into the world as the word of God made flesh, as light and life in a world of death and darkness. Life comes from him, and in him all life holds together. He is the unifying principle at the heart of all existence. The goal of all we see, of all our enjoyment, of all our work, the way all things work together and hold together are found in him. That's who Jesus is. In fact, the the Christian life, I think, is just a great apologetic for the truth of the Bible. It's been a great strength for me in my own life. It's that the way that of Christianity just, just makes the most sense of life in this world. It ends up proving all statistics for the best way to live. So if you read about healthy and happy marriages, it, it, it turns out that even among non-Christians, they're generally following the biblical pattern and standards for marriage. Many of us can testify that when we're walking most closely with Jesus... Aligning our lives with the truth of Scripture. Those are the best days. That's the way that we want to live when we're living that way. And it's in part because we're living the lives that we're made for. Seeing and experiencing God in the world as He designed for us to see and taste it. And so life itself becomes an apologetic for the Christian faith. Again, as C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You know, I I have struggled with doubt as a Christian. Um, Not much and not long, but it's been very real when I did. And on the other side of faith, when doubt is the strongest, I can tell you it's pretty dark. Without God, or without a a trust in His Word, logic carried to its ultimate conclusion leaves us without any kind of solid direction. Without any sort of solid meaning. It, It removes real hope. Welcomes confusion. And so faith in the Bible, just the Christian life, really can be like someone turning on the lights. And thankfully, our faith is built on real historical events, eyewitness testimonies, sound reason, and it all lines up with our experience. And yet, not everyone will see the light. Verse 5 suggests that there's a battle going on between life and life light, and darkness. There's hostility between the world and Christ. Something that's going to be playing out in the Gospel of John and that will eventually bring us to the cross. And yet John tells us the darkness can't overcome him. So there are strong hints here right at the beginning of just how important it is to respond to Jesus rightly. Life and death Hang in the balance. That's why John begins his gospel this way, and not with a narrative of Jesus' earthly life. He's writing in order that you believe and have life in his name. And John wants us to know who Jesus is for that. He's, He's trying to persuade us of the truth about Jesus so that you and I become his disciples. And so just like any time a speaker, before a speaker gets up on stage, someone comes up and introduces that speaker, and they tell you all the reasons that you're supposed to listen to this speaker. 
John has composed a quick look at Jesus' ultimate credentials. This is who this man is. You need to respond to him. He's God, the creator. He's life and life, light. And so we ought to believe in him. Which brings us to the second point. Believe in him. Believe in him. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The man sent from God in verse 6 isn't John, the author of this gospel. It's, it's, it's a reference to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was widely recognized as a prophet in his day, so much so that when we come to the end of the Gospels or in, into Acts, even after John has died, we still have people following John instead of Jesus. That's how trusted of a source John was. And yet, this might be a reason why John, the author, has to clearly state he's not the light. <laughs> he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And isn't that the last part amazing? The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This world of darkness. I mean, there's a reason that we celebrate Christmas every year. This is an amazing truth. And yet it's easy to just pass over it. So let's not do that. The Creator God is both transcendent and imminent. This is part of what makes Christianity just so so different from every other religion. God is far above us. He is not like us, existing outside of time and outside of our experience. And yet, He's near to us. He's, He's mindful of us. He acts in time, revealing himself to us, even coming to us in the person of Jesus. And John, the Baptist, came to prepare the way. He came to testify to this truth. And that testimony is both a display of God's grace to the world and of just how deep the darkness of our spiritual condition is. Think about this. When, when the true light appeared to the world, we needed a witness to call our attention to it. And God in His grace provided us that man to cry out to us, just as He promised in Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi verse, or 4, verse 5, that the Lord is coming. And now we can say the Lord is here in chapter 1. That's the point of highlighting the witness here. The word, who is both light and life, must be believed. Jesus must be trusted. And yet, as clear as John's testimony was as a trusted prophet, Jesus is still rejected. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him. And yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That should be shocking. Why would those living in darkness reject the light? If you're in a dark room, and you can't see your hand in front of you, but then there's a little speck of light in the distance, you instinctively move to the light. You know, for for whatever reason, but safety being one of them. That's just what people do in darkness. We we move to the light. Jesus is the light of this world. He is life. The one who made us. And here we are living in the darkness of our sin. Suffering under death. And when the light and life shows up, we need a prophet to say, go to him. Believe in him. almost as if our spiritual condition is one in which we don't just live in darkness, we're also blind. We're spiritually blind people living in the dark. 
In other words, people are so spiritually rebellious that even the Jews, after centuries of waiting for the Messiah to finally appear, with all the promises having been given to them, with the word of God in their hands, they don't recognize him. When he came, his own didn't receive him. Now, that's not a shot at the Jews specifically. It's simply indicative of our human condition after the fall. When our first parents rejected God, when they were in his presence in the garden and rejected him, sin and death entered into this world and we live under that rule by nature. So our natural condition in the flesh is so spiritually broken, helpless, and rebellious that we would rather play God ourselves than to respond to Him. We will make many gods for ourselves. People and things will determine our loves and actions all for our own sake. And so when God comes into His own world, the world says, Who? And it still does. That's messed up. I know far too often we like to look at our sin as if it's not that ugly. But this is the reason we reject God. It's because we'd rather have our way. So we cannot see Him. And so we are deserving of God's rejection of us. And His just judgment against our sin. We don't deserve life and light, but death. But there is good news. Verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born, not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, of the will of man, but of God. To all, without qualification, all, every type of sinner living in death and darkness, to all who receive Him, He gave the right to be children of God. To receive Him is the same thing as believing in His name. It's it's to hear this eternal word and trust it for eternal life. To believe that Jesus is who He says He is. That He is the eternal Son of God. And that He came as life and light into this world. To live a perfect life on our behalf as one of us. And then to die on the cross for our sins, suffering death and darkness in our place as God pours out His judgment on Him for us. And this is also that through faith in Him, we too can be considered as righteous as Jesus is in God's sight. It's union with Christ through faith that makes God's forgiveness of our sins possible. And not just forgiveness, but new life in a new world. We get a promised inheritance as children of God. We share the same family status as Jesus does with God. We're children. I mean, what an incredible status faith offers. I love what J.I. Packer has written when he says, adoption is the highest blessing in the gospel. Justification is the foundational blessing, yes. And to be forgiven by the judge is a great thing. But it is quite another to be loved and adopted by the judge. To enjoy the full rights and privileges of sonship, like an inheritance. And church, if if God has accepted us into his family in this manner, then we ought to accept one another as brothers and sisters. To see our church as a family, because that is what we are. That's why it should be such a life-giving encouragement to be a part of one. Especially in our day. 
I mean, with all the pressure of modern-day society to, to reach a level of status, uh, to receive the affirmation and praise of others, and oftentimes it's, it's just at a level of a like button that we need. Christians enjoy the highest status that's possible for any created being in the universe. And we share it with the one who pre-existed creation, the one who made creation. We are children of God. And so regardless of whatever differences of age or culture, personality or social status, we should enjoy the unity of Christ in this church. We are one body committed to one another in love. Because a trust in God's Son unites us all to God's Spirit. He dwells within us. And given our spiritual condition, that trust itself is a miracle. Which is why verse 13, John tells us, this doesn't come about through our parents. It doesn't come through our own strength or will. But of God himself. doesn't matter where you go to church or if you go to church. It's not a cultural thing. Becoming a Christian is a miracle of God-given faith. So if we've experienced the light, that's you. You possess this right given to us by God. Then as a church, we ought to be extremely humble. Extremely grateful. And extremely compassionate. Clearly, the world is searching. The world is searching for life. Just groping around in the dark. Looking to hold on to something for meaning. Something for security. And the world's not going to find it in the things that they take hold of. Whether it's sex, riches, or societal change. I mean, this search is fully on display all around us in what ought to be shocking ways to us. Hurting people rather than giving them life. And yet that search doesn't wake up anyone to the beauty and goodness of God. People may even hear of Jesus. They may feel their need for Jesus, but seeing they don't see. As I was Reflecting on these verses, I was reminded of a time that I was watching American Tale with one of our kids. And that is a painful little movie to watch with your kids. I don't know if you've ever done this or if you've seen the movie. But it's a movie about a son trying to find his papa and a papa trying to find his son. That's the whole movie. And towards the end of it, when they have completely given up hope, they walk by one another convinced that they're seeing a mirage. And at that point, I'm hearing screams of tears. He's right there. I mean, so badly my kids just wanted to happen what they've all been looking for the whole time. He's right there. And that ought to be the cry of every Christian to the world. Knowing the search that they are on. Knowing that they they need life. And we know Christ has come. We know that God has come near. But the spiritual condition of people requires the miraculous help of God's Spirit. And He does that. He gives that through the church's prayers and through the church's witness. Church, think about this. Apart from a miracle, no one's just walking into church these days. It's not something they think they should do, or have to do, or want to do. We, we have to invite them. We have to go out speaking, talking about Jesus, and saying, come and see. Come and see. Even more importantly, they're not going to submit to God's will and ways. They're not going to confess Jesus as Lord without being told the good news that He has come to rescue them from sin and darkness and to rule over them in order to give them life. They need to hear the testimony from us. That's why Jesus calls believers now the light of the world. His Spirit dwells in us. And so now we bear witness to the light. 
And if the world rejects our witness, don't be surprised and don't be discouraged. Don't let the relatively small number of people who believe, who don't believe, who believe, persuade you to do anything else. The Bible isn't surprised by the relatively few who travel the narrow road. In fact, it prepares us early on to understand that God's people are almost always part of a remnant, not a majority. So hold fast to your faith. Receive Jesus as your Lord and God, because the reward is God's own presence. It's God with us. And that brings us to the final point. Enjoy him. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. It's been said that this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. The Word didn't just appear to be human. He became flesh. It's one of the reasons that Christians have a high view of the body. God takes on humanity and enters into human affairs. And He does so in order to rescue us from darkness and death. You know, for whatever reason, when when bad things happen in the world, people tend to conclude God doesn't care. And I can understand why they go there and and feel compassion uh, for them in in that feeling, that thought. Because if God is God, indeed, he, he could have prevented that bad thing from happening. But without diving into the mysterious reasons that bad things happen, let's just look at this objective truth here. God came into a rebellious world, deserving of his judgment. And he identified with us in the flesh. God came to us. Now, that doesn't explain the why to our suffering or the why to your loved one's suffering. But it does reveal God's heart. He's not indifferent. He cares about our problems. In fact, he could not care more. Look what he's done. Look at why he came. He came to save us from the worst suffering possible. And he did that by suffering himself on our behalf. And he did that so we might enjoy his presence. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. God cares. Literally, the text says that he tabernacled among us. And that's another amazing statement. God's presence first dwelled with his people in the garden. All of creation at that point looked like a temple because God walked with Adam and Eve. But due to their sin, they were put out of the garden and the world was subjected to a curse. But in God's plan of redeeming the world, he starts with the people. And after he saves them out of Egypt, he gives them instructions in his law. And life under that law centered around the tabernacle. That's where God's glory came down, veiled by a cloud. So that he could dwell among his people. And wherever his people went with the tabernacle, so the glory of God went. But of course, no one could enter into that inner room of the tabernacle where God's glory was said to dwell. But here's Jesus, God's Son, full of God's glory, dwelling among us. And the Apostle John is a witness of that glory. He says, we observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John may be referring to the transfiguration in verse 14 when he says, we observed His glory. Uh, Lots of people think that's the case. That could be the case. 
John was there when the the veil of Jesus' humanity was lifted and Jesus shone with the glory of God as the one and only Son from the Father. But based on what John says at the end of verse 14, that glory that John observed is also on display in the entire ministry of Jesus. You see, when when Moses caught a a glimpse of God's glory on, on the mountain, God passed by and declared himself to Moses to be a God of loving kindness and faithfulness. Or you could say, true to his word, faithfulness. So his glory was summed up in grace and truth. It's a phrase that was taken up again and again throughout scripture to refer to God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And John's point right here is to say that God's covenant faithfulness finds its ultimate expression in the sending of his own one-of-a-kind son. John observed grace and truth in its fullness in Jesus. I don't think it's just on the mountain. I think that's in his entire ministry. That's the gospel itself. The law was given to us, right? We were covenant breakers. We were by nature sinners. And the law was good in showing us to that. But in Christ... In all of his ministry, we see God's grace and truth. We have his covenant faithfulness making us his own people. This is what John's testimony is all about. It's what makes Jesus light and life to us. He's God's glory shining upon us with grace and truth. Verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. Grace upon grace is often understood as an unbroken series of grace gifts. You know, so grace is, is given again and again, like, well, like one wave on top of another, just crashing upon the shore. That's, what, that's what the kind of grace that we've experienced as God's people. It's just, it's just grace upon grace. The Christian life is just one where we're constantly experiencing that. And that's a wonderful truth that you can find all over the New Testament. But what exactly... Right here in John chapter 1 is that wave upon wave of grace that John's referring to. Well, he tells us in verse 17. For the law was given through through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the grace upon grace. Now, you might be tempted to read that and pit the law against grace here because sometimes that's the contrast that Scripture makes. But that's only the contrast, grace versus law, when it comes to our justification. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, not the works of the law. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about justification here, so that's not the contrast we're looking at. This is not grace versus law. Grace upon grace is the grace of Christ upon the grace of the law. As the Apostle Paul himself says, the law is good. It's God's grace to his people. I mean, Israel was worshiping idols in Egypt when God saved them and brought them to his mountain. He didn't put conditions on them before choosing them or giving them his law. That's grace. And then the law itself, while it revealed sin and condemned them as sinners, it provides a way for for God to dwell in his people's midst. So so that too is grace. It even provided a way to, to deal with that sin. The law revealed God's character. It distinguished Israel as his people. I mean, no other nation got God's law. It's grace. And this law was his gracious word given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the the contrast of of the but here in verse 17. It's, it's, It's given Versus Cain, not grace versus law. In other words, at one point, God's grace came through a mediator detached from the messenger. It was, it was given through Moses. But now grace has come to us in the mediator. The glory of God, grace and truth, covenant faithfulness, came. In the person of Jesus Christ. And it's come to us because of God's steadfast faithfulness. He made promises and he keeps them. In other words, it's come to us through truth. And it's in the fullness 
of Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of God. We can know everything that we need to know about God in the person of Christ. Look again at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Moses asked to see God's face, and he couldn't. But in Christ, we get a a perfect reputation of God's person and nature, of God's heart. We get the fullness of grace and truth. Though no one has seen God, we have this word, this revelation from God in his Son. If you're not a Christian, again, we're glad you're here. and, and, And we fully understand that you come here with questions about God. About the Bible, I'm sure. And those are the biggest questions of, 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 of life and meaning that are, are wrapped up in those questions. So, so these are good questions for you to have. And I want you to encourage you to keep coming back and concentrate on Jesus. I realize there are other questions and objections you have, and I'm not saying they're not important or that you shouldn't get answers to them. But Jesus is the deep end of Christianity. And the Bible's claim is that all your questions about life and God are answered in Him. So in one sense, as you come back each week, I want you to just kind of set aside the questions that you have for a time and just focus on the answer. Look at Jesus and then come back to those questions. Read read the Gospel of John on your own. and, And I want to encourage you, read it without a critical spirit. I think so many people miss out on Jesus and having their questions answered because they come to the Bible with a critical spirit. They're sort of cynical and closed-minded about what they're actually reading. Just read it for what it is and be open-minded so that you you read it on its own claims as as a word from God and see what that does for you. Verse 18 here is meant to draw us back to verse 1. If you ever want a relationship with somebody, you have to talk to them. Jesus is the Word of God, made flesh, revealing to us the fullness of God. You see, the purpose of all these connections to God's Word in the past, from creation to the tabernacle to the law, is to locate Jesus as the fulfillment of that Word. It's like thousands of years of God speaking just suddenly burst onto screen in a singular word. Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation. And there's no other possibility of us coming to know God except through Him. That's why later Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's light and life. He's the fullness of God's glory. And we can enjoy Him through faith. Through trusting this testimony. And that's what creates and sustains our ministry here as a church. This is who and what our life together is all about. So I want us to gather as a church with this mindset. We're we're here because of Jesus to lift up Jesus To enjoy his presence with us. And when we live out our covenant with one another, we ought to do so with a sense that we're making Jesus known to the world. We, the body of Christ on earth, are the place. We're the the new locale where this world should see and experience Jesus. Because his his spirit is here with us. Not that the presence of God isn't everywhere. He is. But his presence isn't felt or seen in the same way everywhere. His Spirit actually dwells within believers. Together we are living stones. We are one great temple. And so when we think about our life here, when we think about our church, we don't want to first think of the music, or what we like about the services. What we ought to long for and pray for and work for is is to know Christ's presence with us. Christ's likeness in us. It's it's Jesus that we want this church to be all about. It's strange that a pastor should have to say that today. But I want to say that. This church should be about Jesus. And we have to work for that because the church has been commercialized and made part of the service industry of our country. That seeps into our mindset so easily. 
Church, let's be about Christ. And if we're about Christ, then let's be united together around his word. Let's, be, let's enjoy the, the peace and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's live lives that are serious about faith and repentance and love for God and one another. Because these are the things that, that Jesus will say later in John 13 and 17 that will show the world that we belong to him and that he comes from God. And that's because after Jesus rose from the dead for us, he gave us life by the Spirit who dwells in us. It's why the New Testament refers to us as the body of Christ on earth. This just has so many implications for our life together. We're to be the light of the world. Right, Amy Bullock read this passage from us or to us earlier, and she I was thinking as she was reading, this is so perfect. She she ends all of her emails, some of her texts, shine on. Our lives are now testimonies to the saving actions of God, to his character. People should hear from us about Jesus. They should see Jesus in us. We should be that light. We should shine. And hearing and believing should lead them to what everyone deep down is searching for. And it should bring them joy. And that should also add to ours. So let's look to Christ hear from him in his word, that we might find life in him and know the joy of his presence with us and so glorify him together. Let's pray for that. God, we do pray that with your spirit's help, we will ever increasingly see your son, that we would see him by faith, that you would strengthen this faith, that we might live together like him, And so see him in our life together. And God, we pray this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.